in January of 1967, there was a launch pad test of Apollo 1, which was to be the first flight of a three-man Apollo capsule into Earth's orbit. Somewhere in the capsule's 31 miles of wiring, a wire had been stripped of its insulation. The bare wire happened to be near a cooling line, and there was a violent chemical reaction between the silver in the wire and the ethylene glycol. Within seconds, flames spread across the cabin ceiling. At 6.31 p.m., astronaut Roger Chaffee said, we've got a fire in the cockpit. A few seconds later, the transmission ended with a cry of pain. All three astronauts died. I remember that. I guess some of you do too. Two years later, when Apollo 11 got ready to carry human beings to the moon, President Nixon asked William Sapphire to write a speech entitled, In Event of Moon Disaster. If anything went wrong on the moon mission, Nixon would read the speech on TV, the radio communications with the moon would be cut off, the astronauts would be left alone to die, and a minister would commend their souls to the deepest of the deep. But that's not what happened. On July 20, 1969, with less than 30 seconds of fuel left, the lunar module landed in the Sea of Tranquility, and Commander Neil A. Armstrong stepped off the ladder onto the gray, powdery surface of the moon. It was the first time humans had ever gone to another celestial body. And after their return to Earth, the astronauts had parades and dinners and held in their honor in Washington, D.C. President Nixon gave each astronaut the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The human race had just accomplished its greatest technological achievement of all time. That's taken from an article in Christianity Today, and I share that with you. You know, as I read that, many of you are like me. You can remember these events. You can remember watching these things happen. There are so many things about that event that are just remarkable. They ascended into the heavens, they went to the moon, and there was enormous risk incredible danger. There were things that they had prepared for and incredible contingencies had been made. You know, what if this? What if this? What if this? They had thought of everything and yet they knew very well that there were certain things that could not have been predicted until they were there. One of the things I recall from my childhood was that they weren't at all sure how deep the dust was on the moon. And there was some concern that when the lunar lander touched down, that it would just keep going down into the dust and never actually hit on something solid because they just couldn't know. And uh, this human endeavor really teaches us some things that will be relevant in today's scripture in a moment because it teaches us about the danger and the glory of ascending. So let's read today's passage from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, starting at verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So just like the astronauts, there is, for these people who witnessed Jesus' ascension, a great deal of risk. Those astronauts who died, and since then we've seen that happen a few times, those who take that enormous risk in order to push the boundaries of human endeavor will always tell you that it was worth the risk. It just occurred to me that I could say the same thing to you about being your pastor these last six years. It's a risk to root yourself into a community and to make yourself part of a people with your love and to be with them through their difficult times and their joys and to really immerse yourself into their lives and to let them into your life is a great risk given the fact that there is every reason to think that it might all change with a phone call from the bishop. And we know what that's like. And I can tell you that it's worth the risk. It's worth the risk. It's the only way to push the boundaries, to ascend. And so when Jesus explained to them what they were about to experience after his ascension, it was a little bit like an ascension of that rocket into space so, so long ago. There was a sense that with Jesus' departure, they were now on a mission to do scary and terrifying things. Their lives were never going to be the same. Since they encountered Jesus, these people had one permanent life-changing event after another. Have you had one of those? Do you know what it's like when your life is cruising along and then all of a sudden you get the diagnosis, find out you're expecting a baby, your baby's born, say, with a disability that you didn't, know, you didn't see coming, uh, you go to work one day and they say there's been a change in the structure from the corporate level and we don't need you anymore and they hand you your stuff in a box and send you out the door. And on and on it goes. We have these life-changing moments all the time. And everything that we thought we knew about our lives and made, that made them predictable changes. 
Now these guys had just gotten used to the idea that Jesus was alive. And there's a hint in this passage that I really think is neat. I didn't put this in my notes, but I can't help it. I've got to say it. They are asking Jesus if he's ready to take over. He's back from the grave. They are aware that he has supernatural power. And they say, well, okay, we didn't really get this up to this point, but now we see that you are much better equipped to take over the world. So when are you going to start? And in classic Jesus fashion, he says, that's none of your business. The Father knows, but you guys just need to relax. And then he proceeds to explain to them everything that's going to happen. And I really love the way he says this because it's also matter of fact. He doesn't say, I need for you to do this and I want you to do that. What he says is, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to take the good news from right where you are spiraling outward until you've eventually shared it with the whole world. He doesn't ask them to do it. He doesn't order them to do it. He just says it's going to happen. And you know, we have the hindsight that they lacked so that we can say, and they did. Now, they find themselves looking up into the sky after he says this, and I can't even imagine of all the life-changing events that have happened to me and some of the most earth-shattering news that I've had to receive or give, I can't even grasp what it must have been like for them to hear him say, you're going to do all of this, you'll see, and then he leaves. I, and, and he doesn't just like get in a cab and go to the other side of town. I mean, he's just, he's gone. He's in another dimension, in a manner of speaking. He's no longer with them. And it's interesting to me, again, how this passage describes what might seem like a real casual stroll back down the pathways and across the valleys for a day or so. It sounds like it takes, you know, it says a Sabbath day's walk. I find that passage very interesting as well. What what is the significance of it being the Sabbath day and taking that long? Well, I think that's where we get to what's the most important learning for today is, is that they waited. They've just experienced this profoundly disturbing good news, bad news kind of thing, and they just kind of walked. It, it reminds me of those fellas that were walking on the road to Emmaus. I picture that scene in my head and I imagine these bewildered people just walking down the road slowly, maybe not saying a whole lot. Now, I don't know if this is a women and men thing, but I can tell you that two men could sit in a car for two hours and not utter three words and consider it a meaningful time of sharing. So I can imagine these men, especially, just walking down the roads that lead back to their apartment in Jerusalem that they're renting, and, and not saying anything. 
probably all thinking the same thing, but not saying much of anything. Because they're bewildered beyond belief. They've come to realize that everything Jesus says will happen, will happen. They see it because, they expect it rather, because they've seen it over and over again. And it just gets, it escalates, you know. I mean, he says that someone who is sick will be healed and they see that happen. He says that eventually they're going to kill him, but don't worry, he'll be back on the third day. And they see that happen. And so by now, when he says, you're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit and you're going to spread the good news all over the world, they accept that it's going to happen, but they have no idea when or how. All they know is, is they can't see Jesus anymore. He's not physically present like he was anymore. So what do they do? They wait. They wait. They go to their apartment and they wait. And they have some friends there as well. But they just wait and they pray. Do you suppose there's a lesson in there for us? You know, in my profession, I hear a lot of people's prayer concerns. People are always asking me to pray. And I am honored and privileged and delighted to pray for people. And I'm not going to tell you that I have the patience that these fellas seem to be exercising, but... I do have some life experience, and I have had the privilege of walking with God for a long time. And what I know is, is that you just might as well wait, because that's how it works. Because Jesus says things will happen that will be remarkable, world-changing events, but he also says it's not for you to know when that's going to happen or exactly how that's going to happen. We're rapidly approaching Pentecost, and we know what they didn't know, and that was that there was this crazy, bizarre event that was going to happen where the Spirit of God was going to come on them in mass. Like, like you know, God used to give out the Holy Spirit with an eyedropper. You know what I mean? He, he, you read in the Scripture where, where uh, a certain person, Gideon, was given a certain gift of the Spirit, you know, and God's going, plop, there you go. And then he says Bezalel is going to make a, uh, all the beautiful artwork for the, the uh, tabernacle tents and everything. And he's got the Spirit of God in him. So God went, boop, and there he goes. And so we've got you know, all these different things happening to people that is sort of micro-spiritual activity in the lives of the people. And then at Pentecost, it's like God just takes the whole bucket of the Holy Spirit and goes... Just does like the ice bucket challenge, just dumps it all over everybody. But they don't know that. They don't know that. All they know is, as Jesus said, it will happen and it will. And I imagine that they even wondered just how long they were supposed to stay in this upper room and pray. I'm not saying they minded the prayer. And, you know, sometimes praying and waiting is exactly what you should do. And sometimes getting busy 
is exactly what you should do. The other thing we're fairly confident of about Scripture and those times is that they were anticipating the return of Jesus perhaps even within their lifetime. For them, it seemed altogether likely that everything they heard would happen sooner rather than later. And so it's not hard to imagine them being together in this compressed sort of community of new Christians uh, just kind of biding their time waiting for the things Jesus said to happen. I'd like to point out that if for any reason we are tempted to think that God has been unduly uh, difficult with us in our prayers because we've asked for things and never really seen an answer that suited us, that we should recognize that these folks went through the same things. They didn't know. They didn't know. We have a compressed view of it because the scripture just says they prayed and they waited and then a new paragraph starts or a new chapter starts and suddenly we're seeing activity again. And we don't know how long these things took place. And my guess is is they grew impatient They grew frightened and their faith waned. They probably even thought maybe they'd better come up with a different version of God's plan that, you know, would somehow make it happen the way God said it would happen. And this is interesting because not long after the passage we read, they they elect Matthias as an apostle. Um, I don't know whether they did the right thing or wrong thing on that. That's an interesting story in itself, but... The interesting thing is, is that when you think of the 12th apostle or the one that took Judas's place, who usually comes to mind? The apostle Paul. Because he seems to be the one with the anointing and the authority given by Jesus. I'm not picking on old Matthias. I mean, I'm sure Matt was a great guy and all. But it's kind of interesting that they decided to do something about it. You know, they they just thought, well, you know, maybe the reason that the Lord is waiting to fulfill what he said he was going to do is because we haven't replaced Judas and our numbers are off. But see, what we all know instinctively is that waiting builds character. It makes us learn or at least begin to learn. They waited and they prayed not as though they didn't know what to do because Jesus told them what they'd be doing. They waited and they prayed because he said, you will receive the Holy Spirit. And I'm guessing they were pretty sure that there was something that had to happen. Again, we know that when he greeted them in the other Gospels, he breathed the Spirit on them. But there seems to be a different expression of the Spirit yet to come. And again, we know what that is because we've, we've got the hindsight, we've got the book. But they didn't. And so the word for us today, I believe, is that we must be willing to put what we hope for in God's hands, and then we must be willing to wait. We need to be like the Israelites during the wandering in the wilderness. 
They went about their day-to-day lives living in community, but always sort of every now and again glancing over at the pillar of fire by night or the cloud by day to see if it was on the move again. In the same way, we, the church, the body of Christ, have to be alert to the presence of the Holy Spirit, and we need to be willing to keep an eye open for the movement of the Spirit, even while we go about our day-to-day business of being the community, the family that is the body of Christ. So we take care of day-to-day things, but we respond to the movement of the Spirit And we wait and we pray. And when we see the Spirit moving, we join God in whatever God is about, whatever God is doing. This is the way of discipleship. This is the way it's always been. God already knows what God intends to do. Jesus says, these are the things that are going to happen. And he doesn't tell them how or when, and he doesn't even tell them what they need to do to make these things happen. He just says these things are going to happen. Now, I want to close by just pointing this out to you. I don't believe Jesus' statement there, starting at chapter 7, excuse me, verse 7 of chapter 1, I don't believe his statement is really limited to them. I think it applies to us pretty plainly too. It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But when you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses where you are. In your neighborhood, in your community, in and around your world. And then you'll even go to some of these places you don't really like to go. Because it makes you uncomfortable, even to the ends of the earth. God had me on a plan like that a long time ago, 20-something years ago, more than that really, but in the ministry years. I started out in a very local context. I remember my first church, three years in the student appointment, we were very close to our families of origin. And so with five young children, two with spina bifida, one six months old when we went into the first parsonage. It was great that we had grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles all within a few miles of us because in all of that learning and preparing for a life of ministry, we had this support network that was incredibly helpful to us. But then we got sent to places further away, some more uncomfortable for us than others. And we've gone further and further every time until this last time where we seem to be going a little closer to that support network, but not needing it so much. And all for the sake of the gospel. And in the middle of it all, I've even had opportunities to go to other parts of the world. And so, my challenge to you is, is if you're really willing to receive the Holy Spirit and to be a born-again believer, submitting yourself to the authority of Christ, then your purpose is to wait and pray and be busy doing the things that God expects you to do, looking for where the Lord is at work in His 
world around you and to join God in those things that God is doing. But the one thing you can't do is nothing. You've got to be busy. Jesus expects it. And as we read in the beginning where we read about the moon mission, we know that there is no great endeavor that doesn't require courage and faith and perseverance and a great deal of risk. But at the end, it's so much worth, it's so worth so much more than a life that was comfortable and perhaps meaningless. Let us pray. Thanks, Lord, for the word. The capital W word that comes from your heart. Burn that into us so that we might be changed forever by your word. That we might obey you and love you and be willing to risk anything and everything for your name's sake. Not as some sort of martyr or servant of sacrifice, but as someone who loves the journey when they walk with the Lord. Amen.